tonight we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. And, um, and if you've been around for the last few months, actually even for the last year, we've kind of been working our way uh, through um, this book. And tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 7. Um, so obviously it's taking us a little bit of time. But we're just really intentional people, you know? So that's, that's something. Um, last week, Alex talked about worry and how God delights to give us um, what we need. And this week, we'll find Jesus beginning to actually conclude this famous Sermon on the Mount. And in that, he'll be speaking to places in us or in our humanity, or as Dallas Willard puts it, he's going to speak to some of those tender places in us, those deep places that are actually the epicenter of, of, of our response to Jesus in this teaching. This is the place where our actions and our behaviors will come from. So, so with that, um, why don't we read tonight's text, Matthew chapter 7, um, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The word of God, everyone. <laughs> I mean, hello, what a strange verse, but we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. Um, as you can see, Jesus starts us off with the light stuff. Um, when we were talking as a teaching team, John Mark was like, judgment's going to be perfect for you. So um, I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, I always liked the light stuff. Last time it was fasting, this time it's judgment. Um, but, but here he is, Jesus is addressing this. Now remember that Jesus' target audience were the scribes or the Pharisees of the day. This would be the religious people who had a tendency to be legalistic. They would draw really hard lines. Um, these are the people who tended to be the, the moral um, guardians of the day, right? They'd be looking and assessing whether someone was doing something good or wrong. Um, and and they're, they're, they're marking it in their little books, right? They're, they're critics in the, the worst sense of the word. So needless to say, this issue that Jesus is addressing was one that was present and prevalent in his day and time. And it wasn't just for the religious people. It was also um, for the disciples of Jesus who were about to enter into their apprenticeship to him. So Jesus was kind of setting a stage or the tone um, for them in his teaching here. Now we're going to work, work through the text line by line, so just pick up in verse 1, and, uh, and then I'll have some stuff to say, I'm sure, at some point. Now if I pass out, someone come and pick me up. Um, make sure I'm covered. That's the most important thing. <laughs> uh, okay, so you're with me then. I knew that would get your attention at some level. Um, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. Pretty simple. Uh, it doesn't take a scholar to understand some of the basic implications of what Jesus is getting at here. However, if we're going to fully understand what he's after and really understand the, the kind of whole of this text, we have to define this term judge. The definition in the Greek for this word is an expansive definition, but if we boil it down, uh, in this text it means to make a distinction. 
So it's a statement of something either being wrong or good. Now, like I said, Jesus' statement seems pretty simple, but I would hate for its simplicity to dilute the power that's actually behind it. This short sentence is actually one of the most vital commands in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly for us, the people of God. Because it's through this command that people are shaped, and we're shaped either by reconciliation or by condemnation. And Jesus knew that as he was laying this out here. As the reader, um, we kind of get a broader glimpse into what Jesus is asking of his disciples in this text. Um, It's like this, this first verse is like a thesis statement for us for this entire section. And it's speaking to us about the texture, the workings of life in the kingdom, of life with our family, of life with our coworkers and our neighbors. And, and really, it's alluding to the fact that this idea of judgment is not missing anyone. It's going to touch all of us in our lives at some point and at some time. Um, so, that's first one. Easy, right? Easy breezy. Okay, verse two. <laughs> For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This verse is saying that we have to expect the same standards of judgment applied to both the judger and the one being judged. It's as simple as that. Meaning if if judgment or if the judgment we bring to someone is harsh or if it's graceless, if it's it's an assuming posture, then we should expect the same kind of judgment to befall us. Dale Bruner, a scholar and theologian on the book of Matthew, says that this verse is one of the strongest verses in the scriptures for sympathy. (laughs) And I agree. Um, But I'd also add, if Dale would let me, um, that it's an argument for um, making sure you check yourself before you open up your mouth to judge um, somebody. Dale uh, later on goes on to say that the threat of God's judgment can often move us where appeals to God's love cannot. And while the statement is strong, I believe it is conveying the heart of the warning behind this verse. In in this specific part of our text, Jesus seems to be pulling back the veil of our often warped belief system of judgment. This idea, we believe, that, that, that those of us who are judging have a right and freedom to do so, and that we'll be exonerated from judgment ourselves. And it's pulling back the veil on the belief system that that if we show signs of disapproval for those who are wayward, that they're actually going to be impacted by it and they'll be corrected by our judgment. And here Jesus reminds us that 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 mindset leads us to a place of actual judgment ourselves. And he's clear. Verse 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now here, Jesus is giving us an actual picture of what he's talking about in the verse above. And if this picture seems ridiculous, it's because it's supposed to be. That's like the whole intent behind it. Someone was telling me um, that a couple years ago, John Mark did a teaching, this teaching. So um, anyway, so I I bet it's good. Right, and, and apparently he brought a two-by-four into the, into the sanctuary and held it up in front of his eyeball. Do you guys, does anyone remember that? Hey, do you remember that, Bucky? No? Anyway, so he was moving around with a plank in front of his eye and saying, like, see how it would be weird? Anyway, so I didn't do that, but you got the visual just now. Um, 
And it is, it's comical, it's supposed to be. This image of a plank sticking out of somebody's eye is supposed to represent something like our own sin that when it's sometimes so blatant and obvious and humiliating, it's funny. It's like that ridiculous, you know? And that's the point Jesus is making. It's what Dale Bruner calls the law of critical gravity. He says this, this is the idea that we as humans, particularly as humans who follow Jesus, have a propensity to undervalue our own faults and failures while overvaluing the faults and failures of other people. And of course, in this text, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't have high standards of behavior for ourselves or for other people. What he is talking about, though, is the temptation to look on each other or to judge one another as failures, and that that in and of itself is a temptation for us to play God. And so he makes it clear that when we assume the posture of God in other people's lives, there will be a revealing of the way we too have sinned and are in need of mercy. And the point is not to be like, man, you're the terrible person and, and you're the worst. It's, it's just to say that you have sin too. And we as disciples of Jesus have to live under that reality, particularly when we start to move to a place of judgment for another person. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here, Jesus tells us how to avoid this powerful indictment of being called a hypocrite, which if we're disciples of Jesus, we know is, is a narrative that we hear sometimes about who we are. And if you'll remember from our previous teachings, hypocrite means someone who like wears a mask, or in today's terms, it's someone who's living a lie, more or less. And here he says, in order to avoid being hypocritical in this issue of judgment, and in that losing all credibility with the one that you're judging or the one you're correcting, that we should clean up our act before we look to other people and their sin. And then, and only then, after we've examined ourselves and dealt with our own sin, he says, will we be able to see clear enough to not take the posture of God, but in mercy to actually seek to help the other who has the speck in their eye. And this is Jesus. He's so masterful in how he's saying it. He, he's not even obsessed with the issue of like, hey man, make sure you clean up your act before you call someone else out. He's saying like, you actually can't see clearly until you deal with what's in your life. And, and I want that to be line. He's concerned about us, the judger, and the one being judged. Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, when I judge, I am blind to my own evil and to the grace granted the other person. It's um, this weird analogy, and I used it this morning, so maybe it's just going to really be knocked out of the park here. But I have this purse that my mom made me. It's really nice. It's like a leather purse, and um, it's huge, and it, it holds a lot of things in it. And at any point in time, if you reached your hand in my purse, you would just, you'd come out with some sticky stuff on your hands. And some kind of food um, would be attached to it. And this is embarrassing. This is probably why I don't have a boyfriend. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but this is just confessions of a real life pretty girl. I don't know. Um, <laughs> So, so I, I, you know, like occasionally, like right before Christmas, I was like pulling out my computer and saltine crackers were falling off the end. I don't know. I was like, I, was, I don't know how like, those got in there and at the bottom of my purse, they're in there. So I don't know what's happening. And I usually have Sour Patch Kids in there for emergencies. And, um, and so there's usually like some Sour Patch Kids somewhere in some space in my purse. 
So um, for me, I, I usually throw my sunglasses, they're like $12 glasses, I just throw them in my purse and then I put them on and usually when I put them on, there's some kind of food on them. Um, so <laughs> this is really personal, but here we are. Um, so, so this is the point, this is like a really weird way to make this point, but when I put my glasses on, they're usually dirty, so that might drive somebody nuts at some point. That I just, you know, I don't know, whatever I do, whatever. <laughs> it's, a fancy, it's a joke, I don't do that. Uh, <laughs> um, right, so I clean them off and I put them on, and it's, it, it's inhibiting the way that I see things. Now let's just say that the arm of my Sour Patch Kid got stuck onto the lens of my glasses. My glasses. And I'm looking out and I think I see something that's not actually there. It's, the, it's stuck onto the actual lens of my glasses. Do you know what I'm saying? The Sour Patch arm is stuck on there. And um, then I'm seeing something that's not actually there. And this is the strange point, this is how Jesus would make this point, I'm sure, that he was, he was making, is that oftentimes when we approach another person, we're doing so with glasses that have Sour Patch Kids on them. You know? And, and in that, we're, we're looking, and it's already hazy anyway, because we're looking through a muddled glass, but we're actually, we have the propensity, if we don't clean off those glasses, to see things that aren't actually there. And in that, we're doing harm to the other, and, and we're stepping into places we shouldn't even be approaching or stepping into. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this ridiculous analogy. Not as good as mine, but, you know, <laughs> close. The, the heartbeat behind this verse in particular is that we as disciples of Jesus would be committed to living godly and blameless lives. That we'd be committed to being holy people as individuals and as a collective sum, but that in that journey, there would always, always, always be mutual sanctification and mutual growth. And if there's not, if that's not taking place in us, especially as we're moving towards judging another, then we have to question what's actually taking place. And we have to question what's actually happening within us. Now, one more verse, and then uh, we'll get to all the other stuff. Uh, verse 6, this is, remember this one about the pigs? Great. Uh, it, it, here he says, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. <laughs> I mean, I can't read that without laughing. I don't know why. Um, obviously, this is a metaphor, so that's helpful for some of us. Let's just start there. And some scholars um, believe this part of the text is to be read independent from the last part. Um, however, there are other scholars who think they um, kind of run together. So there's a few ways to understand this. Some would say that Jesus is giving an example of what happens when we play God with others and in that push the things of God onto other people whether they are ready for them or not. Others would say that this text is saying that as disciples of Jesus, um, we're to treasure and to guard the message of the kingdom as something sacred, as something beautiful, as something to be treasured and something to be valued. And I think that both are right here in this text, <clears throat> my opinion, but I think it's right. Uh, as we look at the text, you have to notice these terms, um, dogs and pigs, what's Jesus doing here? These two examples are the way that Jesus made a distinction between those in the community of Jesus and those outside of the community. And Jesus isn't suggesting that certain classes of people, of course, are dogs or pigs. He's not saying that, that we should not give good things and do good deeds to those outside of the community. 
uh, the, the, the faith community that we're in, even to those who might reject or misuse them, he's not saying that at all. I think more accurately, he's, he's highlighting a problem. He's saying that when we reference holy things, like the meaning or the message of the kingdom, for people who are outside of the community of Jesus, it's not always helpful. Now, this isn't an argument against evangelism. You need to be speaking and sharing the gospel with those who need it. But this is a warning for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. Keep listening. This picture that Jesus is speaking to is more about our efforts as a disciple to correct and control things by giving good things to people. It's speaking to our desire to help people along in their journey to Jesus and in that to kind of harass them or to move them with holy talk or with condemnation to do the thing we want them to do. And there's a warning here for us. Um, N.T. Wright says, um, what matters here is our approach to the people. Um, what matters in our approach then is, is to people is, is not just what we do, but how we do it and when. And, and we can count on it that a superior attitude or condemnation will never help us out. So in so many words, he's saying that we're to be mindful of, of when and how we speak to people about the message of the kingdom. And above all, we have to be aware of the temptation to be superior, even if it's small or subtle. And that is, in, in the vein or the thread of what we're talking about here, that, that is in the line of judgment, of being judgmental. It's looking at someone who's outside of the community of faith and judging them for what they do not know or do not have. And this is a simple warning for us to not do that. Now, um, for any of us who are following Jesus, there is a tension in this text that is unavoidable. In fact, this, um, this text is paradoxical when compared with some of the rest of scriptures. And what I mean by that is that the message or the ask of Jesus here contradicts itself, it seems, in other places in the scriptures. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know that all throughout the scriptures there are commands um, that encourage us as the people of God to prophetically evaluate the sins of people in our faith community. And as disciples of Jesus, there is a call or a set-apartness that gives us an authority to speak into the lives of those around us. So what Jesus is teaching here isn't as simple as we'd like it to be. I mean, not that judgment's like super fun or anything, but it's not as linear as we'd hope. So if we're going to understand what he's getting at in like a really personal way, we have to press into this idea of judgment just a little bit further. Um, when we talk about judgment, there is an important, an important distinction to be made, especially for those of us who are trying to walk this way of Jesus. And the distinction is this. There's a distinction between judgment and correction. Now, in the history of Christianity, these two terms have become very blurred. <laughs> and Christianity, as many of us have known it, has had within itself a culture that breeds suspicion and often leans towards judgment. And in that, we have a tendency to make some things central that in fact are not, and to decentralize the important things that need our focus. And I think it's this distortion that has led us and continues to lead us as people of Jesus to places of judgment. So judgment is when we call out perceived evil or wrongdoing in another person without loving them. It's when we draw attention to someone else's wrong just to draw attention to it, and then make a declaration about that person's identity, not just their actions. Judgment is always rooted in selfish and self-righteous motives. 
and it always produces shame in the other person. It deals in absolutes, and it leaves no room for grace. And I don't think there's any one of us in this room who would argue that judgment is powerful and that it it has the ability to cut to the vulnerable areas in us, the core parts of who we are. And that's why I would say to all of us in this room, it is rare that someone is ever changed by the judgment of another person. Wouldn't you agree? Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, when we condemn another, we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and just irredeemable way bad. Bad as discards of human life. He or she is not acceptable. And we sentence that person to exclusion. Now, I don't know if um, you sat around on your holiday break and thought about judgment, like I did, and... um, Maybe one or two of you did. Um, You know, it's not something we sit around and think about. It's not something we culturally stop and go like, are we judging? Are we not? Are we? I mean, judgment is a thing in our culture, but it's rare that any of us take time kind of to stop and assess, at least for me, or has been, if I'm actually doing it or how it's intersecting my life or the implications of it or the implications on culture or the implications for my friends or whatever it may be. And if it's not on your radar, I would argue that's because it's easy to miss in a lot of ways. Judgment is one of those subtle and yet available assets that we have uh, available to us. It's the mask our culture uses day in and day out, both inside and outside of the church. It's the license that many of us use to not have to be in relationship with that specific person or with that other person. And uh, it's the defense many of us use to not have to associate with people who are different than us. It's a currency in our culture that we exchange with one another, and we do it often through sarcasm or we do it through quick remarks. But I believe it's become one of the greatest weapons that, that the enemy has used against us. And what's scary is it is subtle and silent. You know, it's like one of these pervasive things that, that gets in and begins to infect the whole being. Um, Judgment comes in so many uh, shapes and forms, and it's often blanketed or bookended uh, with nicisms to help us feel like we're not being as mean as we actually are. Um, You know, I'm from the South. I know I've said that 298 times, you know, in my life up here. Um, but, But, you know, we say that thing, you've heard me say it before, but we say bless your heart when we say something mean, then we say bless her heart. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, you look, look like you're getting a little weight. Bless your heart or whatever. You know what I mean? Right? I just got back from the South, so I know. And that's what we're talking about. Now, some of you, um, you think, oh, you Southern people are the worst. Yeah. Um, but you guys do it too when you say stuff like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm just kidding, though. You know? Right? It's like this subtle thing of like, oh, or don't take it so seriously. It was just, it was just a joke or whatever. Right? We bookend our judgment with these nicisms or the assumption that you're being too sensitive about what we're talking about, and we all just, we've learned to just let that leave the room, when actually it's impacted the person who's hearing it. And, and, and it's so weird, because judgment has this power to tear down in a moment, a perceived, to tear down something that's perceived moment that was built over a lifetime. It can infest a heart and a mind and totally deconstruct a belief system about somebody, in a moment. And it's judgment, it it is, that keeps us all from seeing 
ourselves and each other the way God sees us. And that's why this, this is such a dangerous thing. That's why it's such an important thing for Jesus to speak to. So, so when Jesus is saying don't judge, he's like speaking in a really profound way to us as the people of God, knowing it's going to impact more than just the surface layer of like do this or don't do this. This is a warning that covers both the one being judged and the one judging. Now still, we have a problem to work through because when we read stuff um, like Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says that we're to judge sinful believers or um, when a friend of ours is in sin or in bondage and so much so that we believe um, that sin is actually going to lead to a spiritual death or an emotional death, even a physical death or whatever it may be, we have to ask ourselves what are we to do And when we look at this text, the temptation, if we're being lazy, would be to reason that judgment means we don't have to think or discern, or that we don't have to call another out. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not asking us to surrender the practice of distinguishing and discerning how things are in order to avoid judgment. He's showing us how we're to train ourselves to hold people responsible without attacking their worth as human beings or making them feel rejected. And that is like a master's level apprenticeship to Jesus thing. This is why this is so important. There's, there's something strategic in this. There's something deep in this that Jesus is calling us to as his disciples. Now, listen, um, <clears throat> I just was home for a while, and people are, um, I was with little children, four, three, two, and 18 months. And it's loud. That's a loud number. That's loud. Um, <laughs> And one thing I know is that um, correction is needed, right? So I'm like, I'm not, I'm your honeybee, but I want to spank you so bad. And don't write me an email about that. I know that, I know. So um, I didn't spank anybody, just whatever. Um, But correction is something that's needed. And for the disciple of Jesus, it should be something that we receive openly and, and humbly. It's something that we will need if we actually want to move forward in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Scriptures all over the place say that, that for those who are actually willing to take correction, they're marked as people who are wise, who are intelligent. They're people who um, actually get this abundance of fruit, of knowledge and wisdom. Those who can heed correction are those who will be entrusted with much. So what we have to get here is that correction, when it's given to us, is the tool that God uses to grow and transform us. It should be the regular part of of the life of a disciple. Letting our shortcomings surface and and come before other people is normal for us if we're actually going to be shaped into Jesus' likeness. Now, correction, just to to distinguish it um, from judgment, is when we correct someone, when when we draw out wrong in another person, and we do it in a loving way. We do it in a way that seeks the good of the individual. We do it in a way where it's rooted in humility. If you've ever had to correct someone, you know it's one of the hardest things you'll have to do. It's a hard thing because you're humbled by the reality of your own sin and your own weakness, and yet you know it is the most loving thing to say, like, hey, this thing's out of alignment. Correction, um, it, it speaks to the good of the other, and it's actually always working for the purpose of that person to get back into the path of discipleship. And if it's not, then it's judgment. If you're speaking to someone and correcting them and, and, and assessing them or whatever, and it has, leads them nowhere back to the place of Jesus, 
in the, into the presence of God in a deeper way, then that is judgment. Um, there's this distinction so clear in my mind. You know, with judgment, um, we're assessing something that we see, and we're just seeing the fault for what it is, and we're naming it for what it is. In correction, we actually see the person behind the fault. And we look for their coming good. We believe for their coming good for them. And that's the, the, the giant distinction here. And Jesus is saying, as disciples of Jesus, you will be people of correction. That's all throughout the scriptures. You're going to be held accountable. You're going to be responsible. You're going to do these different things. But what I'm asking you to not do is to judge another, to not objectify another person based on what you assess about them, but to see them as I see them. Now, there's one more layer to this teaching that I think is helpful to address, particularly in our cultural moment. Um, we live, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a only God can judge me kind of time. Some of you are like, Tupac. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, some of you are a lot younger, and you're like, only Judy can judge me. Okay. Well, that one, that didn't go well this morning either. I should have left it out. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, truly, we hear it all the time, right? You can't judge me. You don't know me. It's everywhere, from celebrities to college campuses. And as much as we don't want to judge others, the pain of being judged doesn't seem to be enough for us to stop perpetuating the self-destructive narrative of our culture that says judge or be judged. Don't judge me has become a battle cry, not only for those outside of the family of God, but for those of us inside of it. For those of us who have no desire to be confronted about the things we know are wrong. And as often as confrontation is abused, and hear me, confrontation is abused over and over again, it is also a tool we use to avoid and to justify behaviors. We live in a time where to disagree often means to hate, but the reality is for the disciple of Jesus that, that if we, without the shame of judgment, um, receive the disagreement, the correction, the rebuke, that those things can actually make us more like Jesus. So if we, if we move towards understanding this text, if we allow ourselves to feel the tension of the cultural narratives, then I think that we should decisively posture ourselves in a different way than what we're finding in culture that we should decisively posture ourselves in humility, which, which means that when judgment comes to us or when we feel correction coming to us, we are quick, yes, to discard the shame that judgment brings. When they're speaking to that objectified part of your person, yes, discard that quickly and, and use Jesus to, or ask Jesus to help you do that. But at the same time, there's wisdom in holding the correction whatever it would mean. And, and for those of us who are wanting to grow and be mature disciples of Jesus, I think this is what we should be pressing into. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to know where judgment begins and ends. Because in order to not hold the shame that judgment brings, so some of us have had judgment from our parents or from friends or people who have loved us, and in order not to hold the shame that's lumped into that judgment, we'll have to understand what's actually taking place both in the judger and the one being judged. So psychologists say that, that, that we judge, or when we judge, um, we usually do it because, um, four things, um, because we're insecure, 
um, because we're scared, and because we're lonely, and because we're seeking change. So, so let me elaborate those things. So, so hopefully this will help us. When, when someone's coming at us, the, the thought posture, the thing that helps me is to assess what the judger is saying to me. So when we're insecure, um, usually that means when you're unhappy with who you are. Um, and though it never actually helps to make, tear someone down when you're feeling bad about yourself, we do it anyway because we want to feel good by making other people look bad or sound bad or be bad, right? Um, so when we're insecure, this, this is what manifests. It's a judgment on other people. Sometimes this manifests as shame or self-judgment, and it's vocalized by us. You know, sometimes we'll do it to ourselves, that self-deprecation. Other times you'll see it in situations where people feel isolated, and, and, and um, they feel isolated largely because they're different than other people around them, whatever, but you'll see this manifest as insecurity and then judgment placed on another. Um, we do it when we're scared. So, so think of when you, when you encounter someone that intimidates you or someone you feel threatened by or afraid of, often we judge people. Oftentimes coworkers do this. They get together and make fun of their boss. I mean, you guys don't. <laughs> and I don't. But, um, but, but people do this, right? This is a way that judgment manifests. Or two girls, when they get together and they see a pretty, um, pretty girl or prettier woman, and they see as a threat that they usually make fun of her hair or her outfit. Again, I don't. Um, but maybe you do. I don't know. Um, when people are scared, they try to feel better by putting people down, and that's where judgment begins to linger. We also do it when we're lonely. As odd as it sounds, when you're lonely, you use judgment often as a way to connect or bond with other people through negativity. And I know that one seems a little bit weird, but as I sat with it um, over the last couple of days, I realized that I've done that. that. That if I'm able to judge someone in a negative way when I'm feeling lonely, I actually feel like there's some sort of connection there. And it's a subtle thing the enemy is using against us. Finally, when we're seeking change, when we want our lives to be different um, than they are. For example, if someone um, wants to be in a committed relationship um, and her friend gets engaged, she might miss whisper, oh, that guy is so not right for her. I don't know why they're getting married. He's gross. Um, I just put that in there. Oh. If we're jealous, oftentimes this is how it manifests, through judgment. Now, I know none of you were surprised by any of those things, but what I want to draw your attention to is that those things are areas of pain. Those things are areas that, that we, as disciples of Jesus, get to bring to him. And, and if we're going to get to the root behind judgment, if we're going to get to the why behind why we do it and why others are doing it to us, then we have to be aware of these commonalities that are, being, that are actually taking place when it's happening. The terrible thing about judgment is it, it doesn't, um, we don't just end up hurting the one person we're judging. Everyone ends up hurting when judgment takes place. Psychologists say that when you judge someone, you actually feel worse about yourself. And when you judge someone, it actually affects the emotional environment in which you're in. And for the believer, judgment will quench the Spirit of God in your life. 
And that is the warning here. It's subtle. That's why it's so dangerous. But it is something for us to be mindful of. Judgment always perpetuates stereotypes. And for those of us who are sick and tired of stereotypes, this is the number one way we combat it. And finally, when we judge others, we're actually encouraging harsh judgment on ourselves. And this one is not a surprise to me, because if you're a judger by nature, which I'm sure none of you are, I have a, I have a tendency to be judgmental. Um, that those who are judgmental are often twice as judgmental about themselves. Right, it's those ones on the Enneagram, right, those critics. Um, and that's what's happening. When we judge someone else, what we need to be aware of is that we're actually training ourselves, we're disciplining ourselves to judge ourselves the same way, to assess ourselves the same way. If we're seeing someone as an object or, or the sum of their failure, then we too will be interpreting that as the sum of our failure. We'll be looking at ourselves the same way. Make no mistakes, they're not interchangeable. And that's why Jesus is, is drawing so much attention to this. So, okay, how do we um, get out of this? How do we avoid being judgmental people? I think I've given you some insight, or not, I don't know. Um, but, but I would say a few things. One, um, you need to focus on yourself, which you'll never hear from church ever again, but there you go. And, and what I mean is, you need to get the speck out of your own eye, out of your own eye. You need to deal with the sin, the pain, the insecurity, the loneliness, the desire for change. You need to deal with that stuff here and now. It, it may be for you as a disciple of Jesus something that you discipline yourself to do. I do that. I'm actively taking inventory about my loneliness, about my insecurity, about the places I desire to see change in my life, about those places in me that are failing or are a weakness or whatever it may be, and it's an active thing that I'm doing continually. Be because if I don't deal with that stuff, it's gonna spill out onto you, and not in a good way, in a, in a hurtful way, in a, in a damaging way, or just like a messy way, One of the, and you won't like that either, so, right? So, so I would encourage you, get the speck out of your own eye or the plank out of your own, whatever size, I don't know what it is. But deal with your sin, deal with your pain, deal with what's happening with you. And that's the first step in, in moving away from, from being a judgmental person. Next, take captive your thoughts. This is like that same old exhortation from Paul, but take captive your thoughts and make them obedient to Jesus. Remember, one time I taught, and we talked about holding up our thoughts to God and saying, is this actually helpful? Is this honoring to you, and is it honoring to them? And if he says no, then just, that's it. And that's the same thing when it comes to judgment. Is this actually helpful? Is this honoring to you, God? And is it honoring to the other person to share this information or to say this thing? And if it's not, discard it. And if it is, then say it. Next, look for the good and believe the best in the other. If you're a judgmental person, then you're oftentimes fixating on, on the, the negativity, on the thing that they failed at. But when you're looking more towards correction, when you're looking towards the person, you can actually see them. And your job, as Paul says, as, as disciples of Jesus who actually know the love of God, is to believe the best of everyone. I'm assuming and believing the best of every situation when it comes to a disciple of Jesus. And that's our call here. The mandate is to believe the best of another. That is actually loving someone and doing that well. 
if, you're, if your natural propensity is to believe the worst, then you need to check yourself. There's a reason that's out of alignment. There's an injury there I would imagine that God wants to bring healing to. And this is the space to, to actually press into that and have that realigned. Next, stop judging yourself. <laughs> I mean, you, again, you're doing it because you do it to yourself. Now, of course, there's time for introspection. David said, search me, know me, God, know me inside and out. It's different when God searches me than when I search me, all right? A lot of times I leave out places, amen, where I'm like, let's just not talk about it. Um, or I'm way more harsh and unloving to myself than Jesus would ever be. And, and so the discipline for the disciple of Jesus is to stop judging yourself and to allow the Lord to search you and to correct you and to shape you. And in that, hopefully, you'll be less prone to judge another. And finally, remember how it feels. Remember how it feels when you are judged. It's that weird, like, sucker punch moment. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, someone judges you and you're like, I just... Like, I don't even have the words for it. Because, like, I'm trying, I would try to justify myself, but you don't even like me, so you don't care what I'm saying. You know, I mean, you guys like me, but I'm in my story. And it's like that. I think that there's something to, you know, the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, you hear this language of remember, 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 remember. And this isn't spiritual by any stretch of the imagination. But I wonder if there's an importance here for the disciple of Jesus to remember Remember how it feels to, to move into empathy, to understand what that experience is life, like, and then let that be a motivator to not live that way, to not do that thing. Um, I, just real quick, I um, was trying to figure out where this intersected with my life, aside from the fact that I'm hyperjudgmental and I've been working on it for the last year, so there's that. Um, and I, uh, I, I did, I got to go home last week um, to the South, I went home to Florida and I know, a lot of you know my story, um, but um, my mom left our family when I was a teenager, and um, my dad was a pastor at a church, and I was a big church, and everyone knew, and the South already hypercritical and judgmental. Um, and so that could have been really, really bad. And the biggest thing I was struck by was coming back on the plane um, a couple of days ago in a coma next to people with tuberculosis and who knows what. I mean, I just, <laughs> it's partly why I'm like this. Um, and I was reflecting on, on this teaching and, and on what God was showing me when I was home. And um, I, I, I was thinking about how that whole scenario, they could have just judged us and excommunicated us and left us for dead, and they just didn't. They did the total opposite. And when I went back last Sunday, I went back last Sunday morning, and I was talking to um, some of the church members who are senile now, but um, <laughs> I was like, Miss Barbara, it's me. <laughs> you know, I was like, your favorite. <laughs> um, <coughs> but when I was, I was doing that, I was met with um, the same love and affection and grace that I was given the day that my mom walked out the door. And, um, and I put it together for the first time, like, in my adult brain, that, that what I was met with um, was the fact that these people saw me. Th that they were the kind of people who still see me. They're not really interested in what I'm doing. It makes no difference to them. They think I'm a missionary out here, which is fine. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm doing whatever I'm doing here in Portland. And they are not interested. They 
just as, as, as it was in the days of old when all that crap went down, they didn't see all the failings of my parents. They didn't see what that meant in our, our church community. They didn't see any of that. They looked beyond that stuff to who we were and who we would be. And when I walked back in last week, it was the same thing where I was met with the same like, well, what are you doing now? And there was just not a blanket of judgment in anybody's eyes except for those who were concerned that I was becoming a liberal. So that's a whole other story and another teaching. <laughs> I just say all that to say the call here, I think, of Jesus is for us to see people as he sees them and to move past that sensation in us, that desire in us to play God and to judge or critique someone um, in such a way that's actually detrimental to their entire person. We're called to more than that. And here Jesus has just laser-pointed us. He's brought us back to this place of humility where he's saying, be like me. See people as I see them. Engage them as I would. Allow me to search you and know you. Allow me to be your peace. Allow me to be your security. Allow me to be your healer. Allow me to do those things. And then you won't have a need to judge. The, the bananas thing about this Sermon on the Mount is that we are understanding and tasting the fruit of the bounty of the kingdom of God. And in that, we lack nothing. And this verse is saying that, that same thing, that, that God will meet all of our needs so that we don't have to live out of our insecurity, out of our sin, out of our pain. And that's what he's getting at here, I think, in this verse. So, would you stand with me as we pray?